Praise God. Here in Philippians chapter 3, let's start reading with verse 17. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, and he says, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an example. You know, this is not my point, but this is such a powerful statement by Paul that it just merits some comment. But the Apostle Paul was so absolutely certain of his message and of his walk that he says, you judge everybody and mark them according to me. You know, if you were to say that today, you would be ridiculed, you would be criticized for being arrogant, and who do you think you are, and we would... You know, this is just so politically incorrect, and yet the man who wrote half of the New Testament, he didn't say this just once, he said it a number of times. He says, if anybody preaches any other gospel unto you than that which I've preached, let him be accursed. And then he repeated it, and he says, you know, you use us as an example and be followers together of me and all of these things. He was absolutely certain of what he was preaching. That is powerful. Boy, we could learn a lesson from that. And you know, if we aren't absolutely certain of what we're preaching, I think we shouldn't be preaching. Shouldn't be preaching the opinion of people. We shouldn't just be parroting what somebody else has said. It needs to be things that we've gotten by revelation and that we are absolutely certain of. Man, that is a powerful truth. Mark them which walk so as you have us for an example. And then he says in parentheses, verse 18... For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Well, what a strong statement. And Paul got no pleasure out of saying this. He wasn't rejoicing in this. You know, it seems like there are some people that just enjoy stirring the pot and getting people mad at them and, and preaching things that are offensive and they thrive on the controversy. But Paul wasn't getting any pleasure out of saying this. Matter of fact, he said a similar thing over in the 10th chapter of the book of Romans. And he says, I bear them record talking about the Jews that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And he bore record that, you know, they were zealous. He had been in that situation. He didn't get any pleasure out of saying this, but he said that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. In verse 19, he says, their end is destruction, whose God is their belly. I don't believe that this is just talking about people who love food or are overweight or something like this, but he's just talking about people who lived totally to satisfy their own appetites. It was all about their own fleshly desires and whose glory is in their shame. You know, I could spend more time on this, but I believe that what he's talking about, when you take all of this in context, what he was saying in the third chapter, he's talking about people who are glorying in their flesh, in their accomplishment, religious people who are promoting their own goodness and their own holiness. And that's what he's referring to here when he says that their glory is in their shame. And you know, I don't have the words to totally say this, but if any of you have ever really just been like caught up in the presence of God, if you've ever had an encounter where you just had the veil removed and you saw the glory of God, I guarantee you it makes all of your goodness and all of your righteousness like, you know, uh, Isaiah 64, 6, like filthy rags in comparison. This is how my relationship with the Lord really started is when I was a 
self-righteous uh, 18-year-old and I had been living holy and stuff and trusting in all of my goodness. And then I had this encounter with the Lord and He just showed me His glory. And immediately I realized that all of my righteousness was like filthy rags. And man, I just repented and I thought God was going to kill me. I saw my ungodliness in contrast to His holiness and it just shocked me. And uh, every time you read in Scripture, like Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he said, Oh Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And you find any person in the Bible, when they saw the glory of God, immediately they recognized by comparison that they were nothing. And they immediately had this sense of uh, you know, unworthiness. And this, I believe, is what he's talking about. People who are glorying in their own righteousness and in their own goodness, he says they are glorying in their shame. People that are promoting their own goodness and promoting that you have to live holy in order for the Lord to love you or use you or answer your prayers, etc., are actually glorying in their shame and they are minding earthly things. They are carnally minded. They are focused on just the physical, natural things and not the spiritual things. And what I want to do is back up into this chapter and look at this a little bit closer and show you the people that Paul is talking about here who are the enemies of the cross. And it is not just the pagan religions. You know, often when we talk about things, we, we look at people that are of like a different faith or something, the Muslims as being the enemy of the cross. And there's no doubt that that applies. They definitely are not favorable towards Jesus. They don't exalt Him as God. But Paul here is not only dealing with people who are pagans or uh, like the Romans or people that were against God. He was talking about Jews and even more specifically about Jews who had embraced that Jesus was the Christ and that He died for their sins, but that He wasn't all that they needed. They also had to keep all of the Jewish laws and live according to the Old Testament law. And they were adding to Jesus. In other words, they were making the cross of none effect. This is a strong statement, but this, these are the people that he's talking about. And I believe that we have a lot of people today that would just be highly offended if you were to say that they were the enemies of the cross, but in truth, they are not promoting what Jesus has done only and His atonement, but they are putting the burden of salvation on the backs of people and telling them that unless you do all of these things, God won't love you and bless you. And there are many people today who consider themselves to be Christians and preachers, and they are actually the enemies of the cross. They are preaching against what Jesus did as being the only thing necessary in order to have relationship with God. So let's back up here in this third chapter. In chapter uh, 3, verse 1, it says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. In other words, Paul had said this to them before, and he was saying it again. You know, many of us have heard these things before, but we need to hear it again. Because again, we, most of the people are not preaching this. And if you, you know, part of propaganda is that if you say a lie over and over and over, if you say it enough, people begin to believe it. And we have had religion repeat things and say things so often that it just has an impact on us and we need to constantly be brought back to the power of the cross that it's all about what Jesus did and not what we do for Him. And so it needs to be repeated over and over. In verse 2, beware of dogs. This is a scripture most people keep on their fence. 
Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. You know, this is quite a statement. And again, I wish I had time to uh, really amplify on this. And also, I'm not really qualified. I'm not a Greek scholar or anything. But my little bit of study of the word, this is a terrible put down. Paul is being really brutal here to these people. He's calling them the enemies of the cross. He didn't take pleasure in it, but he's saying these people are against what Jesus is doing. You know, I've got a teaching on uh, a better way to pray. And one of the things that I teach in a better way to pray is that the way most people promote intercession nowadays, they go back to the example of Moses, like in the 32nd chapter, where Moses says, Repent, O God, and turn from this great evil. And then it says in verse 14 that God repented. And they use that as an example. And they talk about Abraham and how he he interceded for uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and started with if there's 50 righteous and he came down. And people use this as an example and they teach this of how we are supposed to be pleading with God to spare America and spare our relatives and spare things. And people use this. But the difference is it says in Galatians chapter 3, that the Old Testament law was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Moses was a mediator between God and man. Jesus hadn't come yet. He hadn't paid for our sins. And so a mediator is a person who tries to reconcile two opposing forces or, or persons. Moses was a mediator between God and man. Abraham was a mediator between God and man. And it was appropriate for them to pray that way. But it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that there is only one mediator between God and man now, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And Jesus has now stood between us and an angry God, and He has reconciled us unto God, and you do not have to plead with God and become a mediator. You do not pray the way that Moses did and the way that Abraham did. And if you do that, you're antichrist. You're against Jesus as being the only mediator. You are assuming a position that Jesus has already taken and Jesus ended all of that Old Testament mediation. You know, when I say that, man, that really gets people upset. I've had good friends get up and walk out of a service who've known me for years and years and years. But you know what? This, in a sense, is what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's not just... Uh, giving them a pass and saying, well, their intention is good. Man, he is saying that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And this statement right here, when he says, beware of the concision, the next verse says, for we are the circumcision. The word circum, you know, is talking about around, circumcision, a cutting all around. But, but the word concision is literally talking about mutilation is what the word means. And what he's basically saying is all of these people who are trusting in the religious ritual, specifically this ritual of circumcision, all you're doing is mutilating your body. Can you imagine how offensive that was to the religious Jew? Today, people wouldn't say things like this. We think, man, you aren't being kind. And all of this. Boy, Paul is just, sometimes he gets brutal talking about things. He says, these people who are preaching that you've got to do all of these Jewish rituals, which the main one was circumcision, all they're doing is just mutilating their body. Boy, that was just so offensive to the Jew. 
Did you know today there are people that preach and you've got to be holy and without holiness no man will see God. You know what that is? That's just, you're totally missing the point. Keep your finger here. Amen. And turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 and let me deal with that verse that says, Without holiness no man shall see the Lord. If you read Hebrews chapter 12, it, talks, it starts off talking about looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. Endure hardness. Remember that what Jesus suffered, and you may be going through some chastening and stuff. It doesn't seem pleasant at the time, but it is always for your own good that God chastens you. And he's, uh, he says here in verse 11... This is Hebrews twelve eleven. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. In other words, people, you know, may be struggling. They may be having things in their life that are being corrected. It may be hard on them at the time, but we need to be encouraging them. In verse 13, and make straight paths for your feet lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Making straight paths for your feet is talking about live a godly example, be living a life that other people can see God in you, and it will be an encouragement unto them. In verse 14, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And then in verse 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail out Fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. The verses in front and the verses after verse 14 are all talking about your example so that other people can see God in you, so that you can be an encouragement to them. And in verse 14, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. I don't believe that this is talking about that you have to be holy or you can't see the Lord. This is talking about you live holy or other people can't see God in your life. The context dictates that. And yet this has all been taught the opposite way and we've been told that unless you're holy, God won't, you can't see the Lord. God won't move in your life. Well, it just depends on how you define holy. Are you going to say, well, you got to be perfect. You can't have any sin. you got to be perfect. You know, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. People will say, oh, well, none of us can be that holy. But, you know, you got to be better than this. you got to live up to this standard. And, you know, the Bible again says, James 2.10, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. This isn't talking about that you've got to be holy or you can't see the Lord because if that's what it meant, none of us could ever see the Lord. Amen. Think about that. None of us are holy. This is talking about that we are supposed to live a godly life so that other people can see God in us and take encouragement by it, see that we have learned, that we've been corrected, and we're better off, and that the Lord working in our life is always going to produce something good. So anyway, I just say all of that to say that that's a scripture that hangs a lot of people up and saying, but you do have to be holy or God won't work in your life. Well, you are the concision. You're just religious. You're just beating yourself up. You're just mutilating yourself. I'm glad I didn't say that. Paul said this. 
And again, it isn't popular to say things like this, but I tell you, our religious system today has gotten to where it has perverted the gospel. We have added to what Jesus has done that you also have to be holy. You also have to do these things. And it has corrupted. And like Paul is saying right here, there are many of us that were brought up in a system that actually was preaching things that were the enemy of the cross. It has diminished what Jesus has done and it has put the emphasis on what we must do and not on what Jesus did for us. So he says back here in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, For we are the circumcision. And again, he's speaking to the Gentiles. He even talked about how that he was the apostle of the Gentiles and he's calling Gentiles the circumcision. Can you imagine how offensive this was to the religious Jew who was proclaiming that they were the true people of God because of the act of circumcision and all of the rest of the Jewish covenant. Keep your finger here again and turn over to Romans chapter 2 and look at a passage here. This is the same person, the Apostle Paul speaking. If you put all of these things together, it makes an even greater impact. But here's what Paul said in verse 25, Romans 2.25, For circumcision verily profiteth, if you keep the law. But if you be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. And since all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, therefore your acts of holiness, all of your goodness, things that you're doing, cannot gain you any extra pull or access to God. Your circumcision, your holiness is, is the equivalent of unholiness. All of your goodness is negated by your badness. And you don't have to, it's not like you're on a scale and if you have more goodness than badness, well then you're ultimately good. No, again, James 2.10, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. If you have one thing wrong in your life, then your holiness has become unholiness. You cannot approach God on the basis of your goodness. You cannot stand before God. Either for salvation. You know, some people will preach this real strong when it comes to salvation that you have to be completely dependent upon Jesus to be born again. But then as soon as you're born again, you've got to start maintaining everything by your own goodness and your own holiness. Paul dealt with that in Romans chapter 5, also Galatians chapter 3 and other places. But that's not true. It's, you have to walk by the same rule. Colossians 2.6 says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. The way that you got saved is the way you continue to relate to God. You came just as you are, trusting in His goodness and not in yours. And you have to continue to relate to Him that way. And failure to do so is the prime reason that Satan is able to stop us and condemn us. You know, Pastor Bob gave those uh, uh, characteristics of being in the circle of grace. And if you are condemned, it's because you aren't walking by grace. You have slipped over into walking in your holiness. Your performance, basing your relationship with God on yourself. So Paul here says that, you know, circumcision could profit you if you could be perfect. But if you aren't perfect, then your uncircumcision is made, your circumcision is made uncircumcision. And in verse 26, therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not circumcision, which is by nature or excuse me, shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law. 
put this into modern day terminology where again, I've said this, but circumcision isn't the issue with us today, but holiness is still a major issue. You could say people who are unholy, which comes naturally, if they are fulfilling the law and if they are living a more moral life than the religious people, which is unnatural, well, you know what? They are going to judge those. He's basically saying that there are ungodly people or un, uh, unholy people that are better off and closer to God than some of the others. There are people that are straight as a gun barrel and twice as empty. <laughs> you know, an example of what I'm talking about here is I was in Phoenix holding a meeting and uh, there was a young girl sitting on the front row over here and she was so excited as I talked about the love of God and how He just loved us and it wasn't based on our goodness. This girl would bounce up and down on her chair. She would literally bounce up and down. She was so excited. And I just was intrigued by her. She was really excited. So I just asked her one time during one of the meetings to come up and give a testimony. I said, what's happened to you? And this girl got up and she says, oh, I'm just so excited. And I mean, every third or fourth word was profanity. God is the best blankety blank thing I've ever had. He's better than getting high. He's better than sex. And she'd talk about sex and having an orgasm and saying it was awesome. But boy, this is great. And she just, she was saying things and people were blushing and it was something else. And you know what? People came up to me afterwards and said, why didn't you shut her up? And I said, you know what, man, God was thrilled with that testimony. I believe God was really pleased. I said, she may not have had the terminology down right, but her heart was just perfect. Amen. And the next year when I came back, this girl was the first one come running up to me and she says, I am so sorry. I had just gotten saved a week before and I didn't know that Christians didn't talk this way, she said. And you know, she grew out of it and she got over it. But you know what? Most of us, we would judge a person based on the terminologies and the whether they use Christianese and all of these things. God is looking at our heart and I believe God was more pleased with that girl's testimony using profanity and comparing him to having sex with people than he, than he is with some other people who got up and used all of the right terminology and stuff like that. Well, if you got any religion in you, that didn't help it in you, did it? Amen. So are you still in Romans? Romans chapter 2, verse 28, it says, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of man, but of God. Can you imagine again how offensive this was to the Jew who they judged being a Jew all on external things? Whether you had the Jewish genes in your body or not. Whether you observed all of the feast days and all of these things. And Paul is saying a true Jew is one that loves God in spirit and in truth. And it's not whether or not you've been circumcised and whether or not you have a long crooked nose or whatever the features of the Jew are and things like this. Boy, this was super offensive to the Jew. Let me just put a little PS here. This is not saying I'm not preaching a replacement theology that the Jews have no point 
no uh, covenant with God. I believe that there are still physical covenants to come with the Jew. And I, you know, if I was drafted and sent to fight with the Jews, I'd defect. I went and fought in Vietnam. I wasn't real excited about it, but I did it. But if they'd have drafted me and sent me to Israel to fight with the Israelis, I'd defect. Amen. If you bless the Jews, you're blessed. If you curse them, you're cursed. I still believe that there's promises for them, but I'm saying that we are the people of God. We are the spiritual Israel, and this is what Paul is saying. He says they're just people that are mutilating their body, but we are the real circumcision. We are the people of God. Man, this was offensive. This was offensive. Keep your finger there and turn over to Galatians. I'm back in Philippians now, but turn, turn to Galatians. And look in chapter 2. This is the Apostle Paul speaking about the same thing. He's trying to verify that what he was saying came by revelation from God. He wasn't taught it by men. And in chapter 2, verse 1, Then fourteen years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me. This is talking about this council that was made by the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 15. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And again, to the Jew, this is just absolutely unacceptable. And he gives the reason why he didn't cause Titus to be circumcised. He took Timothy, who was a Gentile, and had him circumcised, but he didn't compel Titus to be circumcised. And why? He says in the next verse, But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren, unawares, brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. You know what this is talking about? That the, the Jewish Christians, I can guarantee you this wasn't the non-Christian Jews, the ones who had rejected the message of Jesus. But these were the people who had accepted that Jesus was the Messiah, that He died for our sins, but they were still zealous and believed that you had to keep the law and that you had to fulfill all of the requirements. The Jewish Christians who were still legalistic and preaching holiness and you've got to perform. In other words, it wasn't all in the cross. They sent people up to Antioch to spy and see if the Jewish males were being circumcised. Think about this. How do you spy to see if a person is circumcised? I believe one of the reasons God gave circumcision as a sign of the covenants because it's not something you brag about and say, look at me. Amen. It was supposed to be personal. It was supposed to be between you and God, not something that you brag about and go showing people your circumcision. And for people to come in privately and spy to see if they were circumcising people, how do you do this? It appears to me that these legalists were looking under the stalls in the latrine, amen. They were watching them while they go to the bathroom, see what was going on. Can you imagine? 
They're supposed to be doing that in the name of the Lord. And they're peeping toms in the name of the God. Well, this is very offensive to the religious person of Paul's day. And you know what? It's still offensive today that people come in. And it doesn't matter if you've got the love of God all over you. We just had a, a DVD made about Rachel and Kevin Dowling. Are they in here today? I don't see them. But they, they're a couple that were living on the streets in New York. And they came to school. And it's an interracial marriage. And uh, Kevin always wore a do-rag to school every single day. And his hair's real long. And he wears all tie-dyed stuff and things like this. And did you know what? There are religious people today that would come in and judge them because it's an interracial marriage, judge him because his hair is long, judge him because he wore a do-rag, judge, uh, you know, uh, Rachel on different things. And they would come and just look on the external and miss the fact that these people are just in love with God. And I tell you, they, they were living on the streets, eating out of trash cans, they are a trophy of God's grace. And now that they came here, it's a miracle how they were able to pay all their things. And now they have a feeding program where they do tons of food per week. Feeding people. They are one of the largest distributors of food in Colorado Springs and Teller County. And they are touching lots of people's lives. But there are people who will only look on the external... And look at something whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame. They mind earthly things. They are just looking on the physical. And if you don't have every eye dotted and every T crossed, they miss the grace of God and the work of God that's in your heart. We still have the religious Pharisee alive and well today. You know, I just went to um, um, Johnson City, Tennessee. And... I had a, a guy who saw my television program, Marie-Hélène Moulin, who we sponsor in um, France, and we've supported her for many, many years. And that woman is powerful. She has gone toe-to-toe with the king of Monaco and fought uh, to get a Christian group there. She has churches scattered all throughout France. The woman is, what, I don't know, 40-something, close to 50 years old, been single her whole life. She's a very pretty woman, but she's just dedicated her life to the Lord. She's serving God. She's a hero of the faith. She, I really appreciate Marie. She's just awesome. And uh, yet, I put her on my television and mentioned that we sponsored her, and she has four or five churches and we had a guy who was one of our large partners. I mean, the guy gave thousands of dollars to this ministry. And he wrote in and he says, I'll never support you again unless you can prove to me that a woman should be in ministry. And how dare you have a woman in ministry? So I wrote him back. I didn't, you know, I wasn't going to argue with the guy. And I said, look, 90% of the Christians in France are females. And I said, so do we not have churches for them just because there's not enough men around us? Share And I just basically told him, I said, man, you are, you're just judging things on the external. So he wrote back and he apologized. I'm so sorry. And I'll continue to support you. And then the next week, I went to Johnson City, Tennessee, where Pastor Barry and Ann Burns co-pastor the church. And because Ann is a woman, this same guy said, you're a hypocrite. It was not about, you know, a lack of men in France and you... 
you've got a woman pastor that's co-pastored in this church and he says, you're just a hypocrite and he blasted me. And you know what? I wish I wished every person in here knew Ann Burns. She just loves God and she's doing what God's called her to do. And yet there are people that'll sit there and they will just criticize something. They are so legalistic. I talked to Ann about that very thing. We went out to eat and I talked to her and she says, oh, you're in the King James only uh, area. She says, we've got people that they actually have churches where if you walk in, they inspect your Bible. And unless you have a King James only Bible, they take your Bible away and give you a King James only Bible. You can't even use New King James. Phariseeism is still alive and well, brothers and sisters. And whether you want to admit it or not, we've got a lot of it that is coming our way. And all of us, I believe, have more of this in us than what we realize. Paul is talking here, back in Philippians chapter 3, he's talking about people who have embraced that Jesus is the Christ. They say, yes, He died for our sins, but you also have to add to this. And you have to be, in his case, it was talking about circumcision. In our case, it's a multitude of things. You've got to have the King James only. You can't have a woman preacher. You can't. And they're just focused on all of these external things and they're missing the heart of a person. You know, I was raised to believe that a woman couldn't teach men. I've got an answer for that. That's not my point today. I'm not going to teach on it. But you know what? Before I understood what the Scripture was saying, I went to see Catherine Kuhlman. And I, I went prejudiced. I expected to find something wrong. And I did. Amen. <laughs> I don't know how many of you ever went and saw Catherine Kuhlman, but that woman was weird. That woman was really weird. I got offended by a lot of stuff. And I was prejudiced and I had all of these things and I'd been taught one way my whole life. But you know what? Praise God, I had enough gumption that I brought people in. I had to take them out of their stretcher and put them in a chair because of fire codes. And I remember lifting this one lady up. She couldn't have been over 60 pounds. She was near dead. She looked like a Holocaust victim, just bone with skin over it. And the woman, had she was just virtually dead. Couldn't talk, couldn't raise her hand, couldn't do anything. I picked her up and she was like a dish rag. And I put her in a chair. And then after I did my ushering thing, I went down and sat in the, the orchestra pit right in front to watch this woman. I was going to figure out if she was manipulating or if, you know, if there was any hanky-panky or magician stuff going on. I, I went down there to see. And I wasn't down there very long until this woman that I'd taken out of the stretcher and put in the chair came running down front, pushing her stretcher and jumping up and down on the stage. And I knew that that was a miracle. And you know what? Even though I was offended by this woman, even though I didn't like women preachers, I had just a lot of things. I didn't like anything about her personality and the way she says, me thinks. You know, and I didn't understand that that was English at the time. I just, I just thought, she's weird. I didn't like anything about her, but when I saw the power of God, I had enough sense to recognize that's the Holy Spirit. And you know what? I embraced it, and my criticism and all of my junk went out the window. And yet there are some people that are just so stuck on stuff that they are going to sit there and criticize you because your hair is a certain length, because this person's got makeup on, because this person wore a gold 
wedding band and that means that you couldn't be anointed and used of God. Man, we still have all this religious stuff today. And Paul is just blasting it. You're just nothing but people that mutilate your body. You aren't the true Jews. We are. Those of us that aren't even circumcised, we are the true Jews. Man, it's just incensed. The religious people. And then in verse 4 he says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinks that he hath whereof, he might trust in the flesh I more. And here's Paul now saying, He's not preaching this stuff because he doesn't live holy. He does live holy. And he says, matter of fact, if you want to compare yourself, I'll compare myself and I'll come out better. I'm holier than you are. I've been keeping more of the laws than you have. So he begins to enumerate all of his things. In verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning, you know, that right there said a bunch. A Pharisee was an ultra, ultra, ultra strict. Just calling himself a Pharisee uh, was quite a statement. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the right... Basically what he's saying here is those of you who are upset because all of the Jewish laws are being broken, he says, I was more zealous than you were with this. I persecuted the church and even put people in prison and agreed to their death. He persecuted the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He didn't claim to be sinless, but blameless. In other words, he did everything he could, and when he did fail, he offered the appropriate sacrifice. He was blameless in these things. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. You know, we hear this verse used and we apply it to a lot of different things, but Paul was specifically talking about all of his morality, all of his goodness, all of his keeping the commands, him doing all of these things, dotting every I, crossing every T, his church attendance, his holiness, his Bible reading, his fasting, his observance of everything. Every good thing is what he counted but done. You know, that's a terminology we don't use much, but I guarantee you that was offensive. It'd be like somebody else saying something today that I won't say, but uh, we could substitute other words. And the Apostle Paul just gets up and says, man, all this stuff is like done. You know what we do with our dung? We frame it and put it on the wall. <laughs> Let people see all of our degrees. Paul says it's like dung. I actually had somebody take a big old cow patty and let it get hardened and then they framed it and put it on the wall and showed them my degree from Bush University. Paul said all of the things that he used to glory in, he counted them but done. And you know what? There's a lot of people that this is offensive today and they say, but you don't understand, man. I've been seeking the Lord a long time and I've done this and this and this. Again, there is benefit to seeking the Lord. I'm not saying we don't study the Word and you don't live holy. It's, it, matter of fact, I could take the flip side of this coin and teach that you know what? Unless you're faithful in a few things and unless you do certain things, you'll never see God really promote you and open up the doors because He doesn't want to put a person out there that's going to misrepresent Him and stuff. But that does not 
Even though there is benefit to being holy, it is benefit to me. It keeps me sensitive to God. It does not make God love me. It does not make me more qualified. I can't ever trust in my own goodness. And again, I point this out, that the Apostle Paul said that he was circumcised on the eighth day, and yet he said over there in Galatians chapter 5, I believe, verse 3, that if you're circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. So it's not the fact that it's wrong with doing any of these things, but if your trust is in those things is what's wrong. And sad to say, many people are trusting in their own goodness and believing that they have to do these things to make themselves worthy for God to use them. And Paul said, all of his goodness and his holiness, he counted them but done. In verse 9 he says, and be found in him, in Jesus, not having my own righteousness which is of the law. Self-righteousness is always based on your performance to some standard. How well you've kept somebody's standard. And if you are having to live up to some standard, it doesn't matter if it's a religious standard or just your own standard. Did you know you can put yourself under law? I used to make a decision that I would fast and pray two weeks before every time I ministered. I think I mentioned that already. And I had these rules and regulations. And you know what? You just, you can't live up to all of these things. It has to be God's grace and His mercy and your trust in Him. Matter of fact, I remember a time that Jamie and I, when we were pastoring in Pritchett, Colorado, and we had seen a man raised from the dead in a little town of 144 people, and it caused no small stir. And because of this, we had people coming by our door day and night. And I had actually gone days without ever opening the Bible and studying because I was so busy ministering to other people. And I had gone days without praying personally in just my personal relationship. I was praying for people. I was just overwhelmed with the needs. I mean, from morning till night. And I realized that I needed to... uh, spend personal time with the Lord. And so I just made a commitment that the next day I was going to fast and study the Word and pray all day long. And I made a commitment that I was just going to separate myself. Before I even got up, I had people come wake me up in the morning, knocking on the door, and they needed help. And so I opened the Bible, but it was to minister to other people. And I had a steady stream of people come by and I didn't have any time to study the Word or to pray personally. I prayed for other people, but, but I never prayed just personally between me and the Lord. And then I had a guy come by that I had been witnessing to and the guy came by and wanted to take me out to lunch. And I thought, oh man, today could be his day to get saved and he wouldn't understand me fasting and not eating and so I went out with him and since I didn't have breakfast I was hungry and I ate twice as much as I'd normally have eaten and so I was going to a Bible study that night by myself driving 45 miles to go teach this Bible study and I was just feeling so condemned you know why you feel condemned because you're out of grace you're out of that circle of grace I was feeling so condemned and so shameful and I was remember. I mean, I had scriptures come into my remembrance that, you know, it's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not pay. <laughs> All liars will have their part in a lake of fire that burns forever. And I was thinking all of these things, and as I was driving, I was just so condemned. And I was, I was getting closer and closer to the place where I was going to hold the Bible study, and I was just saying, but oh God, I know I failed you today, but how could you ever use me? And I was just pleading, and finally I said, Oh God, 
Just do it because you love the people. Even if, you know, I'm not worthy. Just minister through me and touch the people because you love the people. And I didn't feel any release from that. I didn't feel any faith. And so I just kept bartering and praying. And I, finally I just was saying, I said, Oh God, do it because of who Jesus is. And as soon as I said that, the Lord spoke and said, Who did you think I was going to do it because of? And you know what? I had gotten back into thinking that, God, I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. I'm going to make myself worthy. I'm going to make myself a better vessel. And when I failed my own standards, I came under this condemnation. That's exactly what Paul is talking against. Not having your own righteousness. I was beginning to stand in my own righteousness. I'd made a promise that I'll do this and this and this and this will make me worthy. And God, now I know you're going to use me because I've done everything so right. Paul is saying, I don't want to be found having my own righteousness which is of the law, but the righteousness which is through the faith of Christ, but that which is through the faith of Christ, even the righteousness which is of God by faith. We have to... We have to discipline ourselves, and it takes effort for us to constantly keep our faith transferred to who Jesus is, what He did for us, and not base it on our own performance. Man, that is a powerful, powerful statement. And Paul, this is the people that he's talking about, people who preach contrary to this, these are the enemies of the cross. A person who is preaching that, oh yeah, Jesus died for you, but that's not enough. You've also got to do this and this and this, and until you live up to a certain standard, God won't flow through you. You know, often you'll hear this concerning revival. And you'll hear people praying for revival and saying, who's he that's going to stand in the hill of the Lord? He that hath clean hands and a, a pure heart. And again, that's a scripture. But you know what? We have, ha we have clean hands and a pure heart, not through our own effort, but through putting faith in Jesus. He cleanses us. And we now stand in Him. David prayed this prayer in Psalms chapter 50, 50 or 51. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and to renew a right spirit. Cast me not away from your presence. And we will have people sing songs like that today. And it sounds good, but what that's doing, you are putting the emphasis back on your holiness and on you doing these things. The way a New Testament believer should uh, interpret that is, I've got a brand new heart through my faith in Jesus and I'm now clean and pure in my spirit through Jesus and what He did and not through my holiness. And for you to pray and say, Oh God, take not your Holy Spirit from me is just a slap in the face of Jesus who said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm sending the Holy Spirit and He will be with you forever. There's a difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And we shouldn't be praying the same way. But... When people pray for revival, they'll say, oh, we've got to clean our hearts. God won't fill a dirty vessel. I want you to know God hasn't got any other kind of vessel to fill. <laughs> if you're talking about your flesh, none of us are perfect and holy in our flesh. And I'm, I've lived holier than most of you, and I'm still not holy enough to deserve anything in my flesh. If you're talking about my born-again spirit, well, then that's clean through what Jesus did. You know, I studied, uh, when I first got really turned on to the Lord... This is back in the 60s. Man, I was praying for revival nonstop. We had all night prayer meetings, praying and asking God for revival. And I studied the Moravian revival, the New Hebrides revival. I studied all kinds of revival, and especially the one about the New Hebrides revival. 
Man, it really impressed me. And I actually heard Duncan Campbell speak, the man who preached at the New Hebrides revival. And uh, I was just overwhelmed. And basically it was all about that they just pled with the Lord, Oh God, make me holy. And oh God, pour out your spirit. And they presented that it was based on your holiness, that you had to plead, you had to get God to do it. Basically that God was not motivated to pour out His Spirit. He was up there like with His arms folded like this saying, no, I'm not going to pour out my Spirit on you ungodly group until you repent, until you beg more, until you do something. That was the way that it was presented. I believe it's more like God is like this. He's trying to pour out His Spirit. We need revival. I'm not against revival. I'm just saying that the way that people are pleading and asking God as if He is not wanting to give it is absolutely wrong. God wants revival. It's like you open the door a crack and I'll come flooding in is more what it's like. And so anyway, we were pleading and begging for revival and then I heard another man speak. After I heard Duncan Campbell speak about how that they just pled and there were these two women that prayed for 20 years and then a pastor and his seven deacons got together and prayed for two or three years and they prayed every Saturday night and fasted and sought God and finally God responded to them. And the power of God fell on a Sunday morning. That's, a, that's the model that I had. But then I heard another guy speak and he talked about a young man that all of this was true. There were two women who prayed for 20 years. There was a pastor and his seven deacons that prayed for, for years. But then the night before the power of God was really displayed, there was a young guy that came into their meeting and they were praying all night long. And about two o'clock in the morning, this young guy just stood up and he said, Jay, the Bible says if you humble yourself and pray and seek his face, turn from your wicked ways, He'll hear from heaven, forgive your sins, and heal your lands. And he says, we've done it. And either God's a liar, or we've got the petitions that we've desired. And he says, I'm going home. And so he just left and went home. And the others stood there, and they had planned to pray all night long. And finally, they just agreed, and they decided they'd leave too. And did you know what? That the next day is when the power of God was manifest. And you know what caused it? Not all of their prayers, but when they quit praying... And started believing and just saying, we got it. And that's when the power of God was poured out. Amen or oh me. Does this mean that we don't pray? No, I believe that praying like this, you know what it does? It conditions your heart. It makes your heart ready for what God wants to do. But it doesn't change God's heart. God loves us and wants His power in our lives more than we do. But you have to get so sincere and serious that you turn off the TV and you spend some time seeking God and you prepare your heart. God always has to have a vessel to flow through. But it really makes a difference when you understand that I'm not pleading with God to pour out His power. God is trying to find somebody who will yield to Him and allow Him to flow through them. There's a big difference. So anyway, I got off on all that by saying, that you can't trust in your own righteousness. You can't come before God and be praying for revival, for healing, for deliverance, for prosperity, for joy, for your marriage, or anything based on your goodness. Based on your righteousness. That's standing in the righteousness which is of the law. But we need the righteousness which is through the faith of Christ 
the righteousness which is of God by faith, verse 10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. I believe that verse 10 is dependent on verse 9 and on all of these other verses that we have no confidence in the flesh and that he wasn't standing in his own righteousness. If you really want to know the to know Him, if you want to have relationship with God, you're going to have to base it on His goodness and not yours. You cannot come before God claiming your own goodness. That self-righteousness is the worst sin of all. And God does not honor and it does not bless God for you to come in promoting your own goodness and mentioning your own holiness and your own righteousness. You've got to come before Him having a righteousness which comes by faith. It's just a gift. And that's when you get to know Him and the power of His resurrection. Power flows through people who are trusting in what Jesus has done and not in what they have done. And again, you could go back to some of these same verses that we've already used about the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Talking about the grace of God. It's not your performance. The performance-based religion that is being preached today does not release the power of God. You can find in the New Testament, it says that great grace was upon them and they saw miracles and things began to happen. The miracle power of God is proportional to the grace of God. When people go to preaching, clothesline Christianity and all of this stuff that you have to do, it puts the burden on you. It makes you susceptible to condemnation and it decreases faith and it stops the power of God. And those are radical statements. But this is how you get the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. And Paul even goes on to say that, uh, you know, he hadn't attained unto this. He was just seeking after this. I don't believe that any of us have got a full revelation of the grace of God and have it all worked out. You know, for a long period of time, I saw grace when it came to me ministering because I was completely incapable of standing and ministering to people. I was such an introvert. And yet I didn't see grace in the area of finances. And then, you know, it's like you can departmentalize your life and you can get a revelation of grace in one area and not in another. You know, this Arthur Blessed, some of you are here on Monday night, but... We had lunch with Arthur Blessed a week ago today, I guess it was. And I mean, Arthur Blessed just loves God and is a great guy, has been around the world, has walked through minefields, has walked in between five armies fighting each other, and he and his 12-year-old son walked through carrying a cross with bullets flying. The guy's just absolutely fearless in certain areas and applied the grace of God and just touched on God. And yet we got to talking, and did you know in the area of finances he was struggling, and Jamie and I got to minister to him, and he just sat there with tears dripping off of his chin, realizing how he wasn't operating in the grace of God. And he, he wouldn't, he just didn't feel worthy of his finances. It's amazing how you can receive grace in one area and not in another. I don't know that any of us have a full revelation. This is what Paul's saying. He says, I haven't obtained. I'm just pressing after this one thing I do. And I tell you, that is a secret to seeing the power of God really released in your life. You've got to get single-minded. 
You've got to grab hold of the grace of God. You've got to grab hold of the cross of Christ and say, I will not come back into performance-based religion. I am not going to get back to where I have to earn the favor of God. This doesn't mean that I'm going to live a sloppy life because I know that living holy affects me and it makes my heart sensitive to God. I am very strict and I live a very strict and moral life, but I do it for me. I do it to shut a door on the devil, not so that God will love me. I do not base my relationship with God on my own goodness. And because of that, praise God, I can live free of condemnation and free of these things. And we just need to make sure, you know, we got a lot of ministers here. We, we need to make sure that we are preaching the cross and what Jesus did and not being an enemy of the cross, not diminishing it, not taking people's focus off. If you remember that verse I used last night out of the Message Bible, uh, Galatians 3.1, it says, whose focus isn't clearly on what Jesus has done. We need to focus people's attention completely on what Jesus has done for us instead of our own goodness. And then we will have holiness as a fruit and not a root of salvation. It'll be the byproduct of people understanding how good God is and not the way to obtaining the goodness of God. There's a big, big difference between those two. Amen? Amen. Praise God. That's awesome. So I just pray that we get bold, preaching on the message of the cross, what Jesus has done and not what we have done. Amen. Hopefully this is helping giving you a new understanding of what the cross means. It's preaching on what Jesus has done for us and not what we do for Him. Father, we love You and we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for these truths. Thank You for the battles that the Apostle Paul fought thousands of years ago. And thank You, Father, that He gave us a battle plan, a way how to approach this. And Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit takes these scriptures, applies them to our heart and to our situation, and that, praise God, none of us will be the enemy of the cross of Christ, but that we will trust completely in the Spirit what you've done for us and not in our flesh and in our goodness. Father, we agree and receive that in Jesus' name. Amen.